0: Hello and welcome to A Friendly Chat, the Bristow's podcast for all things friend. Rather, unfortunately, at the moment, my co-host, Naomi, is otherwise engaged with a is something far, far, far tougher than litigation, I can assure you from personal experience, namely parental leave. But fortunately, in her absence, I have none other than the doyen of telecoms litigation. Had to uh, shove that in there, as I know it. <laughs> Makes him deeply embarrassed. Dr. Miles Jelf. Hi,
1: Miles. It's an absolute honor to be here, Luke. I'm conscious I'm filling some pretty big shoes Um, Well, petite shoes. Uh, Yeah, they're pinching a bit. But um, no, it's great. It's great to be here. And, uh, you know, and what an exciting judgment to be talking about. Absolutely. The new decision
0: of Mr. Justice Miller in Interdigital and Nineveh, fair to say, hotly anticipated by the fan community for some time. And what a judgment it is. I don't know about you, Miles, but I have been reading it many a night before bed and um, just about now made it through it.
1: I've been going early mornings, but similarly, uh, it's quite a haul. There's a lot in there. Uh, you can see to be fair, why Mr Justice Meller has taken some considerable time to put it together. This was not something you were going to do in a weekend. Absolutely.
0: Having seen the length of it and the complexity of it and the care that's been taken with it, I think there can be no criticism at all of the time it has taken. Um, but needless to say, it would be good to get on top of some of the uh, immediate issues that came to mind when we read through it. And um, perhaps we should
1: start with, I think you have two overarching impressions of the judgment. Am I right? I mean, there are many things we can take from it, and we'll go through those, you know, or probably a subset of those, because uh, with the 225 pages, almost a <laughs> 1,000 paragraphs, there's a lot to get your teeth into. But a couple of things did strike me, uh, you know, working through it that first time. Um, one is, there's been already a fair amount of coverage to say, well, this seems to be perhaps more sympathetic in this instance to the licensee position than the license all position. Um I'm not sure that's right. I think there is a a lot in this judgment that is relevant to kind of both perspectives. But I I think what you can see is that Mr. Justice Meller. Um, was not at the end of the day enamored by the position idc were taking mm. and he, he seems to have felt that they'd gone for broke and were going for quite a extremes not the right word but um going for a position that was obviously a fair way away from lenovo's and ultimately he comes back much more closely to where the lenovo position was and i wonder is that i don't think that's because it's an inherently pro licensee approach he takes i just think he felt that idc was stuck their, their flag in the sand at quite, uh, you know, towards one end of the spectrum.
0: Yeah, he's quite critical, isn't he, for the failure by IDC to adopt a more middle ground position uh, and does make a number of comments throughout the judgment about the extent to which their evidence headed in a specific direction or was caveated to support a specific, uh, as you say, not extreme, but singular position um, where everything seemed to be backed out to try and support program rates or or near to them against sort of different reality that we can come on and discuss. But just for the benefit of everyone listening... Actually, neither InterDigital nor Lenovo's offers were found to be friend, were they? So uh, his conclusion was a lump sum of $138.7 million should be paid, which equates to $0.175 per device. That's a blended rate for all sales and past sales. Um, and he's parked the question of interest. Uh, to another occasion but I think it's fair to say that's more towards Lenovo's end of the spectrum but there there are reasons for that to do with the Lenovo 7 so perhaps we could go into what comparables he considered and and broadly where he landed.
1: Yes because that in terms of the rate determination um, that was one of the crucial things that, that we could see shaping up coming into the trial the two sides One of the big distinctions between their positions was that Lenovo said the appropriate comparables for the court to to use to deduce a rate that's relevant to them were the biggest uh, in terms of volume licenses that IDC had previously entered into. So these were initially known as the lenovo 6 and then became the lenovo 7 um and so they they were looking at the 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 big beasts that are out there the apple samsung you know the the major players and saying well look we think those are the appropriate comparables whereas idc were very much trying to say no it's them it's the smaller players uh that we say are more relevant as comparables to the kind of entity that lenovo is
0: Yes, there was a sort of suggestion, wasn't there, in the judgment by IDC uh, or in evidence by IDC that was then set out in the judgment that they were trying to suggest the sort of volume discounts given to the larger players were not reflective of a FRAN licensing position between a willing licensor and a willing licensee. Uh, and that, therefore, they weren't the best comparables for a friend rate. But I don't think Mr. Justice Miller had much truck with that. But as you say, do you think that's reflective of the fact that the IDC's portfolio ninety eight percent of the sales were to these
1: individuals? Well, that, that's, I think that was, yes, that was on Lenovo's experts analysis. Because one, one of the things that you can see vexes the judge is that the two relevant key experts were kind of a bit like ships passing in the night. Mm. They ha- had com- used completely different methodologies and they also used completely different data sets. So the 98% figure, I think, comes from the volumes that Lenovo put forward, which were accepted by the judge as being more accurate um, or more appropriate. And on that basis, yes, the Lenovo 7 was said to amount to 98% of all handset sales in the global marketplace. And that's what Lenovo said we should be using to work out what's the appropriate license for it. Whereas essentially, IDC were trying to say it's that 2%. We We can look at the 15 odd licenses that were given to and that really illustrates how small these players were, mm. that those were the more appropriate starting place. And so, you know, now with the benefit of hindsight, that does feel like quite an extreme position to have taken. Exactly. And and I think as
0: Mr. Justice Miller suggests, um, you know, when you've licensed 98% of your portfolio, the suggestion that you're not by doing that setting some sort of benchmark or some sort of degree of benchmark for what it's worth particularly I think he was quite critical in the absence of any evidence that those licenses were definitely the subject to hold out. It is a pretty difficult position to be in, to be arguing the contrary to that,
1: isn't mm. it?
0: Um, and Effectively, he then came down, didn't he? he? Looked at the Lenovo Seven, and every time I say that, I keep thinking the Magnificent Seven, which is <laughs> terrible. Uh, seven Samurai. Let's
1: seven go. Samurai. Let's go. Get
0: the Seven <laughs> Samurai. That sounds like that. yes. Okay, that did also cross my mind. Um, go with the original. <laughs> go with the original. Yes. Well, the original thought was the yes Lego Ninjago Ninja Team, but that's probably less a bit more niche. Um, But yes, so he then he he focused on the LG 2017 license, didn't he? I mean, he did he did a careful analysis of the licenses that both parties really focused on, which was the Lenovo 7 and then a few extra ones. Um, the IDC
1: twenty, the IDC
0: twenty. Or... Yes, I, I think he focused on several that IDC had narrowed its case down to by the time of trial. Um, but but obviously he discussed the evidence that, that of the on the interdigital twenty. Um, but he focused on LG twenty seventeen, and I think that was because he felt that best reflected Lenovo's um, position in the market, um, which is quite difficult to say that where you've got a comparable that does reflect a very similar position. To to this other party that's unlicensed, it's quite hard to argue against using that as a comparable, isn't it? I think
1: that's right. I think one of the interesting aspects, though, of, of the overall exercise he's done is that he's quite critical about a number of the discounts that mm. were and the way discounts were both used in in the analysis, and more fundamentally, perhaps he ends up being critical of the way uh, discounts have been deployed in. In the market during these kind of negotiations, hmm. um, and and I think there's a ten, an interesting tension there because on the one hand, with his comments that um so he's he's very uh unsure about the volume discounting practice that seems to have taken place in the marketplace which meant that the according to him the the very significant players end up with much lower rates than appear in the program uh the kind of rack rates which are initially offered um and there's discussion that those rack rates are much more likely to be actually taken up by smaller players and then he says but we see with the really big players they're getting up to 80% discounts on those rates. And he takes the kind of interesting step of saying that he, he makes a finding that that is discriminatory, that's not France, if players who don't have a similar size can't access comparable rates. So that whole exercise feels like he's trying to come down to a market rate that everybody should have access to. Mm. But then equally, when he finally comes down to well, what's, what's the comparable, he, he picks one and said, well, this is the most apposite comparable that we should unpack to, to see what Lenovo should have been awarded.
0: Yeah. Does that come back, though, to this question of, I think he's tolerant, isn't he, of the idea that you can have a sub friend licence and there are legitimate reasons. And I think he gets into signing up Samson as a licensee, because obviously, once you have Samson on your programme, that is a, a huge validation that is of value to a licensor, there, there can be no question of that. So he does accept that. And I think he even finds that certain aspects of certain licenses, that that's a legitimate practice. But I think his, is it fair to say his concern was if you're discounting for pretty much on a volume basis, everybody,
1: then you start to undermine your own program I think it was, I, I think that you're right. I think the thing that troubled him was the scale of those volume discounts. Yes. First of all, he says, F- I can understand there are discounts that are completely legitimate from the rack rates that are based on the time value of money. If people are paying up front, if they're agreeing a very long license, so the or has certainty, these are all things that are completely legitimate. And then he says, and I can see there's an argument for volume discounting because the or is getting a larger sum of money. Mm. that's a huge amount of units being sold but he it's the scale isn't it i think he's when he's saying that that shouldn't allow such disparate rates um as an 80% discount for person A as compared to person B. Exactly, yes. And
0: uh, and he uh, InterDigital raised this point that, well, they had no choice but to agree that because of holdout with his big uh, licensees. But um, he's a bit uh, – he dismisses that, doesn't he, on the basis and, – and I must admit, I, I understand completely the economic argument he relies on. He He says, effectively, if you're making a billion in sales revenue from licensing your portfolio – he struggles with the economics of why spending $10 million on litigation that would improve your rates slightly is not economically desirable. And, and I, I think it's quite difficult to assail that conclusion, isn't it? I mean, one doesn't like to go into litigation against the big names in the industry, but SEP but licensors can and will do it. You only need to know, look at the current litigation between Optus and Apple, for example.
1: Absolutely. And I think what he's saying there is, is although litigation costs for this kind of global dispute can be very significant in in, in real world terms, mm. they're still dwarfed by the numbers um, that eventually come out of the mix. If, as you say, you're licensing potentially hundreds of millions, um, if not billions of, of mm. units, um, I, I think um, he struggles um, a little bit with this kind of the, the, the dis- discounting point. Um, perhaps and again, this is context dependent. You know, it's, we're looking at the particular facts that were put forward and the particular way things were argued, and he has quite a lot to say about the fact. The IDC analysis, the way they were unpacking, was quite complex. And what they were trying to do was to say, we've got these different licenses, each one was subject to different discounting regimes, Mm -hmm. depending on the the particular entity we were dealing with. And, And those discounting regimes were different for the past in some cases as they were to the future. So their analysis tried to isolate all those factors by backing out from the license those particular discounts so they could come to a sort of hypothetical rate that had been negotiated with that entity, shorn of the particular discount that was specific to whoever was being negotiated. And with the intention that they could then take that number or set of numbers and reapply the discounts that they said were appropriate for Lenovo. Hmm. And the judge ends up being quite critical of that because he concludes that the discounts were largely subjective it was in The reality was the parties were agreeing a big number. And then afterwards, they were trying to say, okay, well, the reason we agreed that number was because of discounts X, Y, and Z. But it was all slightly um, an after-the-event analysis rather than something happening beforehand.
0: Exactly. And I think that feeds in, doesn't it, to your point at the start about the immediate perceptions of the judgment being mm. leaning, leaning a particular way. But actually, when you get into the meat of the judgment and indeed put to one side the particular facts of, of why he's reached a conclusion, bearing in mind it is on the facts. You know, you do have a number of points that are, are quite helpful for patentees. You know, for example, he found uh, and do jump in if I'm I'm misspeaking. The the only relevant discount consistent with FRAND was was the time value of money discount. He he did find that you should pay a willing licensor and a willing licensee would pay for past sales at the full rate indeed going back beyond the statutory limitation periods that apply in so far as, albeit he did have to suspend disbelief that you could be negotiating for longer than some of the statutory limitation periods. But these sorts of things where you've got a a licensee paying for full rate for past sales at what he views as a frame rate for the
1: portfolio—that uh, that sort of thing should be good news to a patentee, I'd have thought. Absolutely, he's you know puts this forward and makes no bones about saying that he thinks this is something that will inhibit holdout. Hmm. Uh, he says to the extent that there has been in the past a perception of uh, once you get to sign the license up. What's happened in the past should largely be just washed away and and forgotten about and not paid for. That is an incentive for licensees not to particularly rush to signing up to a deal. Hmm. Uh, And if the case is that whenever the deal gets done, then the license fees are due right back to when the technology first started to be used by the licensee he feels that that will minimise that incentive to delay. Uh, And, you know, that that could be true equally. um, You know, one can take the view that if the ultimate sum that's paid is the same now and later, then why pay it now? And that debate, I think, will surface in the final order hearing Mm. when, as you said at the outset, one of the points that isn't yet decided is, Okay, if fees are due for the past and going back beyond any limitation period, right back to whenever the technology uh, was first used, what do you do about the time value of those payments and should they bear interest or not? Because if they do, then that would actually further reinforce the point um, that uh, disincentivizing holdout through that mechanism.
0: Yes, uh, and indeed he makes no bones about the fact at all, does
1: he, that, that the court, uh, in looking at these things, will affect them. So, th- so this is one of the bits I, I thought was really interesting about the the whole approach and the judgment, uh, is that he very expressly acknowledges that some of the things he's doing are and saying should be the case are different to what's been done by the parties in the wild. So uh, to me, there's a kind of quantum physics analogy here. <laughs> of course, <it's>, there is. <laughs> obviously, that it's, it's you know he's um, as far as Schrodinger's cat is concerned, he's he's opening the box and he's poking the cat with a stick, very <laughs> uh, very <laughs> expressly. He's saying uh, that, and he acknowledges that in two ways. Firstly, he's saying that what's happened in the past may not be consistent with the world that is we can now see from judgments such as Unwired Planet as to what a friend approach is and and how one should go about it. And then even more so, he's saying, and I'm saying some things now, like about the discounting practice, Mm. that I am envisaging will become part of the commercial reality and therefore some of the problems that he feels he had to deal with in this case eventually won't happen because the path he's laying out he believes leads to a more transparent um easy to navigate mechanism for agreeing friend as between parties whether that will turn to be the case will be very interesting to see though Absolutely and
0: uh, and he considered a few other points I sort of feel like we're going to need a few podcasts to address them all but just uh, touching on a couple of the big ones um, needless to say he's not a big fan of the top-down analysis is he? Well,
1: well no not certainly not in this judgment although I Again, you know, it's that theme on these facts. Mm. and Because I think a large part of his criticism of the top-down analysis, it was only IDC who were really pushing for that as a comparator. And they were putting it forward because it matched up with their comparable analysis, which in, in essence was justifying the, the, the program rates, the rack rates. Um, and because he says quite strongly, but I think those were not realistic starting points, the top-down analysis would just appeared to take you back to saying that was the right thing, he was already predisposed to, to not feel that that was the right place for the court to be landing. Exactly,
0: yes. And uh, on on willingness, a few interesting findings. First of all, I think we've got the friend injunction has been once again reinforced, uh, as has indeed the fact that a willing licensee should be giving that undertaking to take the English court's determination at that point of SEP infringement. I think that point's now been decidedly put to bed uh, through Optus and Apple, and and this judgment, but uh, there we are. It's been reinforced. Um, also of note, everyone was unwilling <laughs> in the whole in the whole kit and poodle. Everybody was unwilling, but uh, one one retains the the, the Catholic deathbed retentance uh, ability as a licensee if one wishes to take the friend license. I think that, that's you know. right. I think
1: this, this is going sort of further down the path, if anything, or or at least very least agreeing with the path that was taken in Unwired Planet. That the conduct aspect is is largely irrelevant to the to the English court, you know whatever happened in the past has led us to where we are as long as the parties are now saying, "I'll offer you a license, and I'll take a license then the court's going to set for and it'll be what it's going to be, and nobody is going to be shut out from the licensor's not going to be shut out from being entitled to still ask for you know license fees, and the licensee is not shut out from saying well, actually, now I will take the FRAND licence, even if, as you say, it's a deathbed conversion. (laughs) Exactly. And then I suppose one final point worth touching on, which
0: I I think is sort of partly a a sort of aim to help the market get there without court intervention, isn't it, is uh, he finds in one of the many paragraphs in his judgment, I think it's around the 200 mark, that it's not FRAND, nor is the licensor acting as a willing licensor to refuse to provide the information necessary for a willing licensee to evaluate an offer that has been made Including as to third-party licenses, and then indeed he's got a a great postscript at the end that is all about case management and and trying to encourage the use of the courts to enable the transfer of that information, so that parties can really do this themselves. Um, you know, at the end of the day, that seems to be what he's trying to do. He's trying to help parties get there on their own.
1: I, I think that's right, and it's it's interesting as we've heard. Figures such as Lord Justice Arnold say on a number of occasions that this really ought, this isn't, you know, the courts are not necessarily the best place to resolve these kind of commercial disputes and arbitration. Um, you know, might be more appropriate in some circumstances. And to me, almost what Mr. Justice Meller is saying is, well, we we can, he's he's proposing that maybe parties use the mechanisms of litigation, English litigation, or or indeed elsewhere, because the other thing that comes out of this judgment is he talks in many places about a growing body of case law that's going to come not just from the English court, but from other courts grappling with Frand. But he's saying, are there ways in which you can use the protections, the confidentiality protections of litigation proceedings to get that transparency if it's not available in the wild?
0: Indeed. And and the English court has considerable case law now, doesn't it, including the, from the Court of Appeal about uh, established, well-rehearsed, regimes for the exchange of licensing information that will be fully protected. Uh, and and he's encouraging the use of those mechanisms to get the information parties need to really do a deal, um, which can only really be good for parties at the end of the day.
1: I think so. There's, I feel there's definitely a strand within the judgment where he is frustrated that it almost felt like the two sides were talking, you know, through the great long history of their negotiations, they were talking at cross purposes because they couldn't be full and frank about what they were expecting on the, on the Lenovo side and what they were able to offer and what had been offered elsewhere on the IDC side. Um, and I think he he sees that as a barrier to true France uh, licenses being negotiated out there by parties independently in the wild. Whether that's Whether that's... How that will be received in the market will be very interesting to see. Uh, Yes, needless to say, I think the next few months
0: of various conferences, and uh, we'll be at the odd one, I suspect, Miles, won't we? Uh, It's going to be very, very interesting. Absolutely, yes. No, it's going to be –
1: to see how this is received and what others make of it is going to be fascinating.
0: Well, thank you so much, Miles, for slipping into Naomi's uh, metaphorically huge but practically tiny shoes for this uh, podcast. And um, it only remains for me to say, we look forward to further friendly chats in the future on a variety of topics. I dare say we might return to this judgment once or twice in the near future. Um, And we look forward to seeing you at the next event. Many thanks indeed for listening. (music)